everyone. Welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriela Ariana Campoverde, but you can call me Gabby. Our guest today is Blair Silverberg, founder and CEO of Hum Capital, a funding platform connecting great companies with the right capital for their growth. Hum believes that every qualified company should be able to raise the capital they need to flourish without bias or friction. On Hum's intelligent capital market, companies are evaluated on fundamentals and performance, not on who they know. In this episode, you will learn about the platform that Blair and his team are building, how Hum builds an efficient two-sided marketplace, the current issues companies face when attempting to access capital, and all about Blair's journey from investor to founder. Now, let's get started. Hi, Blair. So great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Great. Happy to be here. Yeah. And where are you calling in from? Oh, I'm in San Francisco today, spending much time with my executive team. We're a fully remote company at this point. So we're about a third in New York, a third in Mexico City, and then a third in San Francisco. Well, sounds like you're in good places to grab great food. I wouldn't be complaining about that too much. Mexico City is the best, the best of the three by far. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, I want to hop right into our episode today. I was curious if you can start with explaining the problem that you and your team are trying to solve. Yeah, so it's probably a problem that um, many of your listeners are intimately familiar with. But for anyone who's running a company, as you know, as you know, capital is lifeblood of that company. And as you also know, raising capital takes three to six months of the CEO and often the CFO's full time and attention, which means the people running companies in our economy are taking gigantic portions of their time away from running their businesses and instead focused on getting the capital that they need to build their businesses. So we make raising capital very easy. Companies come to us, they connect their systems that they use for financial analysis, like a NetSuite or QuickBooks or their payment processors to a system that we've built called the Intelligent Capital Market. And then we scan the entire global capital markets, uh, sovereign wealth funds, large institutional family offices, insurance companies, banks, endowments who invest directly in companies for the very best matches for them. And then we connect both parties. We operate as a fundraising marketplace and we make the capital raising process predictable, efficient, not time consuming. And we also give companies the lowest cost, most efficient forms of financing possible because we're able to optimize what the entire marketplace has to offer. It's really interesting. Do you mind walking us through like what is your platform currently composed of? Because as you mentioned, there's quite a number of players or users that you currently have. What does it look like what does your experience look like for the users? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, honestly, for a, from a company's perspective, like a CFO or a C- CEO, it's a lot like using something like Mint.com or Quicken. So you come to us and you say, hey, I want to raise capital. And we say, great, the fastest way to understand your business is if you connect your QuickBooks and we can do really interesting cohort analysis on things like your payment processor data. We can audit your business for free by looking at online banking data. So these are the three types of data sources. We support about 100 that are really important to the investors on our network. And so we just say, hey, you know, connect to us. It takes about five minutes. You don't have to make a pitch deck. You don't have to make a data room. There's no guessing at what investors want to see. We know exactly what investors like to see. So we prep all of that information for them and show it to you to get your approval. And then when you say, I want to kick off a financing process, 
what we do is we make direct introductions to a bunch of the investors in our network. There's about 250. And so you're meeting investors powered by the data and the analysis that we give you. And you're having conversations, but they're informed by where your company benchmarks relative to other public and private companies. It's a very contextualized, clear conversation that is totally different, much more focused, much less time consuming than the old way. Yeah. And how is it that your customers hear about you, right? It sounds like it's a very specific type of entrepreneur that you're going after, especially with the potential to access their data, right? They have to have that readily available. So what types of businesses and industries do your entrepreneurs come from? Yeah, that's actually a fascinating question. So we've got the number we talked about publicly, it's been like 2,500 companies connected to the system. About half of those are non-coastal. So meaning not in basically New York and California. Average revenue is about $20 million. So these are relatively substantial kind of middle market companies. They're not seed stage startups. There's some data that tells their story. And then by industry, they're incredibly broad. So we have offline services businesses, like the kinds of companies that might be members of YPO or in the Inc. 5000. We also have a bunch of venture-backed businesses that are looking to find accretive financing, often non-dilutive because venture is incredibly uh, under-levered as an industry. So there's a lot of dilution that happens. But it's a pretty broad swath of business. And the reason that this is possible, of course, is that these days, 75% of companies uh, run entirely on SaaS native systems of record. So the big kind of wave that underpins our business is um, the, the adoption of commercial SaaS for your accounting system, for your payment processing, for your Salesforce, CRM, you know, pipeline management, web analytics. I mean, literally just by running your business, you produce a ton of data in the tools that you use that can be used to tell your story well. And so we, we just do that for businesses. Got it. And how did this whole idea get started, right? It seems like a very particular type of business that you're going after. And I'm sure, like, like you mentioned, this is a problem that exists across the board for different industries. What got you interested in this problem period? And what did the early stages look like? Well, so I was a venture capitalist at a firm called Draper Fisher Jurvetson for five years in San Francisco. And I mean, literally every year I met 2000 CEOs back in those days in person. And what I found is everybody, 100% of them, including, you know, three Pete founders who've had tremendous success before, they hated the fundraising process. They felt like it was unpredictable. They felt like there was a ton of bias. I mean, we all know the statistics about bias, whether that is coastal versus non-coastal entrepreneurs, male versus female. You know, probably the most pernicious is just background, people funding their friends versus funding the company that actually has the best products that their customers love. So I just saw a lot of problems in terms of wasted time, human bias, which is, of course, very well documented in behavioral finance, but not widely applied to the private markets. And I just thought there was a tremendous problem that that um that entrepreneurs were sort of taking for granted how unpredictable and labor-intensive financing should be versus what I saw with SaaS adoption, what it could be. So I um, of course, as a venture capitalist, I'd look for a company to fund first. I discovered that it was very hard to find a team that had the right mix of Wall Street experience where they could accurately and in a sophisticated way, financially analyze businesses. And then the Silicon Valley kind of software experience, you need to turn that into a software product that people use on their own, that does a lot of the analysis on its own. And so I just eventually got to the point where I said, gosh, this is so important for the world. Somebody needs to build this. 
I guess it has to be me. And so I founded the business in early 2019 and we've basically been off to the races ever since. And how were you able to communicate with your initial clients? Who were they? How is it that they even heard about you? And why is it that they were interested in this type of financing? So it's really interesting, but um, even to this day, this is somewhat true. Uh, We just sent cold emails to CEOs and CFOs. And we said, if you're raising capital, we should talk unless you think it's just totally efficient and easy for you to do. And the kinds of responses we've gotten to those cold emails are companies one round before going public. You know, companies that you you hear about day in and day out on sites like TechCrunch, you also get a bunch of family-owned businesses. I mean, in the early days, like literally the cold email response rate was like 75%. Companies would reply and say, not raising money now, I'll pay you later. But the ones that were raising money, essentially 100% of them wanted to use a service like Hum. And so uh, it's it's just kind of interesting. But I mean, there is no like kayak for capital, you know, as, as an entrepreneur. I mean, there's just no way to have someone help you navigate the marketplace. Unless, of course, you're raising a little bit north of 100 or $150 million, at which point everybody can go to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or a sophisticated investment bank. And 100% of companies use them. You know, nobody takes themselves public. Nobody does their own negotiation in a $500 million M&A deal. 100% of the time, an investment banker is involved, but it's just not profitable for those kinds of services to be offered to companies raising less than $100 million because they're very human intensive. Historically, these are very much people businesses. And honestly, it's a lot like, you know, in the old days, you had to have hundreds of millions of dollars to have a driver. And now you have Uber, where you had to have, you know, a personal travel planner to book a house, you know, when you went on vacation over the summer and now you have Airbnb. So it's just a continuation in tech of services that used to be very exclusive, being made more democratically accessible via the internet. Yeah, it's really interesting. And in the end of the day, it's like, I'm not sure if you would call yourself a marketplace, but you do have two clients, right? And you explained a lot of like, what is the value prop for your entrepreneurs, but what does it look like for your investors? And like, why are they even interested in a platform like this? So when, when I was a VC, and I, by the way, like I've been investing since I was 13 years old, you know, basically trading stocks my entire life. In the public markets, you use this thing called a stock screener to find investment opportunities. You can search by PE ratio and industry and revenue growth and a million other statistics. And of the, you know, 4,000 companies in the US and call it 50,000 global public companies, you can get a list, like a prioritized list and just start reading and learning about the ones that are interesting to you. What shocked me about the private markets is that nobody has anything close to that. It's like I said, literally thousands of coffee meetings. And nobody likes thousands of coffee meetings. <laughs> so as an investor, you're sifting through a tremendous amount of noise. And in particular, I mean, venture was the most difficult where you know, you're meeting a couple thousand companies and writing like two checks. It's equally noisy and time-consuming for investors to navigate the private markets. When they do find companies that are interesting to them, they're not audited. Their financials aren't clean. It's very difficult to figure out how they benchmark to other opportunities. And so you might spend weeks or months in diligence with a company, get to final documentation. And at the very end, when you do the audit or the quality of earnings, say, oh my gosh, the numbers were different than I expected and have to go back and redo everything. And so that's, of course, not how the market should work. So you know, I, I think that from the investor's perspective, what they like about us 
are one, voluminous, high quality deal flow. Two, every company on the system is audited and has high quality data. So there's, of course, a disincentive. You know, companies don't like to connect their data if they're WeWorks or Theranos. So great companies are comfortable having data tell the story. Companies that border on fraudulent basically don't use Hump. So that filters out a bunch of noise for the investor. And then, of course, being able to screen and access companies much like you would in the public markets is something that is just game-changing for them. And so that's why I think we've, we've seen both high-quality funds and banks come to Hum, but also increasingly institutions that were traditionally LPs, maybe they would invest through funds. There's been a massive movement for these guys to have direct investment practices. But they're always small by headcount, despite having balance sheets that are large, like a $100 billion insurance balance sheet. And so we give them a toolkit where they're able to directly access private market opportunities efficiently. And of course, that just leads to lower cost capital for our companies, more efficient access to capital. And it very much spins a flywheel where more diverse investors with low cost, diversifying sources of capital drive higher quality companies to hum because they can raise capital efficiently and on better terms than they can on their own, which drives more diversifying low-cost investors. And I think that uh, 2021 for us was really the year that this flywheel started to spin aggressively. And it's the kind of thing that once you get it going, it just accelerates and accelerates. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also just want to ask you a bit more about the human bias. Now I'm at Warren, I've learned so much about venture capital, but a lot of it is driven by the network, right? Like you mentioned, it's like having the ability to get that coffee chat or get that phone call, get that the opportunity to come into the office. Can you talk a bit more about where your entrepreneurs are and how you think a platform like Hum is able to you know, expand access to financing capital? Sure. So, I mean, if you are a non-coastal entrepreneur, middle of the country, your Series A and Series B valuation will be two to 10 times lower than if you're a coastal entrepreneur doing the same thing with the same metrics. That is obviously not you know, efficient or fair. You know, similarly, like we all know the statistics about just the low percentage of women and minority founders, much, much, much lower than the percentage of people, you know, i.e. consumers in society from those groups. That's obviously not fair, right? Because the, the entrepreneurial community should basically represent the customers that are going to buy products from them. So these are just two very obvious, kind of clear and unfortunate statistics in our society that get fixed when you look at the data that drives businesses. And the example I always use with this is Sarah Blakely, like the founder of Spanx. I mean, she toiled, very well known, toiled for years and years and years in her basement, making Spanx, selling them at you know, trade shows, basically, or um, you know, farmer's markets. They were flying off the shelf. You know, She had a product that people loved, but you take that product to a male venture capitalist and they say, gosh, I don't really get this. Maybe I'll ask my wife. I mean, the number of times I heard as a venture capitalist, maybe I'll ask my wife, is totally disconnected from how you should actually look at a business. Like maybe you should look at the data and look at the cohort analysis and think about like why this thing is flying off the shelves in the first place and whether or not it's scalable. And so that's just something that you know I get very passionate about is putting putting data first means all of the biases for you know for good reason that humans have that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky have done a wonderful job documenting become less important. And I think if you talk to great public market investors, whether it's you know people like Ray Dalio or Warren Buffett, you know they'll say things like, "Try to be greedy when others are fearful. Be fearful when others are greedy. You know, look at the facts on the ground and make independent decisions." 
And um, that's hard for any human to do, but it's even harder in the private markets where you're trafficking in coffee meetings and relationships first and data second. I know you also use the data beyond sourcing and breaking through the noise. Like, How is it that if you can spend a bit more time talking about deciding as an entrepreneur whether to choose between like equity and debt and like what other services you provide as part of like onboarding to your platform for these the businesses that you're working with that is a that is a great question so um amongst the laundry list of inefficiencies in the private market this is a big one for a large number of companies and so equity versus debt you can kind of think of as very low risk but very very expensive versus higher risk to me as an entrepreneur, but much less expensive. And so, for example, I'm an investor um, personally in a company called Grab Taxi that went public back in um, end of November via SPAC. And if you look at their cap table, their founders own a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the business, like sub 1%. And there are other businesses in their space where founders own 10%. And there's a great, a great article um, looking at companies in the same industry, like Zillow versus Redfin, you know, a bunch of companies that are head-to-head competitors. What percentage of the company the founder own when the company went public? And what you see is basically no correlation to industry. So I think like Rich Barton, the founder of Zillow, owned like 70% of the company. And, you know, the guy that's the um, CEO of Redfin owned 5% of the company. And, you know, this basically comes back to as you're raising capital, how efficient is the capital raising process for you. If you're able to take on debt and avoid dilution for one round, and then in the next round, you take on equity at a much higher valuation, you may own 10 extra points of your company when it goes public. And so, you know, of course, with any sort of financial trade-off like this, there's no free lunch. And so when you take on debt in your business, just like when you take on a mortgage, you, you hope you can pay it back. If you don't pay it back, your lender owns a business. But just like a mortgage, um, there is some amount of debt that is very comfortable for you to take on. If you have a business that has, and these are the kinds of statistics we produce at HUM, but let's say a business comes to us and we're looking at its revenue and revenue volatility, and we spit out a statistic to the entrepreneur that says something like, hey, you know, this particular form of debt that we can get you from seven banks, you're going to be able to pay it back. At any point in your history, with any amount of revenue volatility you've, you've had, you know your revenue's gone up and down by thirty percent, best case to worst case, but it can go down by ninety percent, and you're still going to be fine paying off this debt. That's a very safe amount of debt to to take on, and especially when that amount of debt allows you to own maybe ten extra points of your company at exit, that is a smart financial choice. Now, conversely, there are some businesses think think primarily in the R and D stage where taking on Debt can be very, very risky. So we help entrepreneurs evaluate these trade-offs in the exact same way that like a good financial advisor would help you say, eh, don't buy that house, it's a little bit too expensive, or put down a 30% down payment instead of a 20% down payment. It's just remarkable to me that companies, back to some of the dynamics we talked about before, don't really have a system or an advisor that can help them navigate these issues that are honestly the most expensive and most substantial decisions that management makes running the business. You know, you're talking about approving budget or thinking about product initiatives or sales and marketing expenditures that are 10 to 100 times smaller of an impact to the company 
than the amount of dilution that you take. And so we're helping these companies with the big decisions. And I think that's why they um, flock to us and are comfortable, you know, coming pretty rapidly to a platform like ours just to make good decisions that they basically have to make anyway, uh, but doing so with more data, more context and more visibility. That's fascinating. And can you share some success stories from the entrepreneurs that you've worked with so far? So, well, I mean, we've tons of examples. So there's a company called P97 that is a point of sale system for gas stations. And they've built a fantastic business that allows gas stations to process mobile payments. And this is a business that came to us initially and, and said, you know, look, we built a predictable revenue stream and we think we can start avoiding dilution by taking on some amount of debt. And so we were able to come in and place them with a fintech lender that gave them very rapid and fairly efficient access to capital, but in a relatively small amount. And so they spent that money on sales marketing. They grew their top line as a business. They proved out the scalability of their growth channels. And then they came back to us and they said, you know, gosh, we've kind of exhausted the, you know, a couple million dollars that, that FinTech lenders often provide. What is the permanent solution here? And it was just another go back to the marketplace. Well, the permanent solution for you is a private credit fund that can give you $40 million of capital or $60 million of capital you know, 10 or 20 times what you initially raised on the platform. And so these are the kinds of things that happen where going back to the power of the, the global marketplace for capital, being able to access one instrument at the right point in time for you, and then your needs change, your business profile, your risk profile changes. Now you need to access another instrument. You're not going through the same stakeholder. It's very rare to have just one investor for the entire life cycle of your business. And so that's why the global capital markets exist. And so we'll help businesses navigate between someone who's right for them at one point in time and the person who's right for them at the next stage can be totally different. And the cost of capital can be dramatically different. The availability of capital can be dramatically different. So P97, I think of as a kind of like a usage-based SaaS company or payment processor. We have other companies like in the on-demand food delivery space. There's a wonderful company called Eat Street in the Midwest. It's basically the, the DoorDash of the Midwest. We've helped companies like Security Scorecard, a very large SaaS company, um, that raised money from from uh, T Rowe Price last year. AI companies, wine e-commerce company called Wink Wines. We've helped other companies in spaces as diverse as one of the nation's largest Native American-owned uh, tribal businesses. It's sort of a multi-stage oil and gas company. We helped them raise raise money from a consortium of banks. There's just a tremendous amount of diversity in the types of businesses that we help, and you know they all use SaaS systems of record. They all are trading off. Does the CEO spend six months raising capital or do we do it the new way? They all have to make these decisions, equity versus debt, how much. So while there's a tremendous amount of diversity in the types of companies we serve, there's actually quite a bit of homogeneity in terms of the problems that you have as an entrepreneur raising capital. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And you know, I, I want to pivot a bit more to your career. Clearly, you're quite passionate about this problem, and you had the opportunity to be in the investor seat. How has that transition from being an investor and I guess still keeping that lens look like as you became a first-time founder? That's that's a great question. Gosh, I could say so much about this, but um, so first on being an investor, I mean, I have always believed that one of the most noble things that one can do in society is think about allocating capital well. And so I think investors play this role. They, you know, a lot of people don't understand what they do or how they do it. But if you really dig in, what invest the role investors play in our society is to be an equal partner and check 
on the ambition of the entrepreneur. And when you have an entrepreneur saying, I want to build X as fast as possible, and an investor saying, let's make sure that you're doing that in an efficient and wise way, you get the system of capitalism that is just tremendous and has risen you know, a gigantic percentage of our society out of poverty. It's increased literacy rates. You know, there's all sorts of statistics that the Gates Foundation loves to publish about this stuff that basically just shows any way you slice it, the world is getting better. And that at its core goes back to investors and companies partnering to allocate society's capital wisely. So that's what I love about investing in the, the capital marketplace. Now, of course, do we do that at our maximum efficiency? Could GDP grow like three times as fast if we put data instead of bias at the center of these conversations? Like, I bet it could until, until we started home. No one was really systematically working on that problem. So I could, I could talk more about that and go down that thread. But I think the, the question you asked is really just more like at an individual level from a career perspective, investing versus founding companies. I think that there are, there are a bunch of differences, but the similarities are you're trying to find places where society's capital should be put to efficient and good use for the good of the world. When you're an investor, you're just picking those and then making sure that the capital is deployed rigorously and being an advisor and sounding board to the, the operator. When you're an operator, you're just the other side of that coin. You're building teams and your day-to-day is much more about the people that you put in place and the coaching you do to foster them to have the context and confidence to be effective and creating that teamwork that makes a great company hum. And it's a totally different discipline, but it's basically for the same purpose. And so I found when I made the transition, I mean, I hired an executive coach very early on. I've been a heavy user of a personal therapist. I think I I say very publicly, I, I had to basically to get comfortable with the entrepreneurial journey, I started taking um, Lexapro, you know, there's just a lot of sort of mental prep that you need to go through to start a business and have the grit to, to execute. And there's a lot of personal change that you need to be able to execute on too to conform yourself to the problem that you're solving. And, you know, for me, that was a lot of learning how to foster a team and be patient which is very different from an investor mind where you're just making good decisions. All your, your job is just to make the decision, press buy or sell, and then it's done. And when you're an operator, you press buy years ago and you're fostering the team that's executing. So, you know, happy to talk more about that, but I think that um, you can do both. You know, I'm a big believer that with, with coaching and support and sort of the right level of mental flexibility, people can generally do anything they put their mind to, but it takes very hard work and discipline to conform yourself from, let's say, investor mind to CEO, you know, coach and team builder mind. Yeah. And how has fostering that team been? Like you, your company is at, at least now a bit over three years old. Most of it has been, like you mentioned, working remotely um, and building your team that way. So what has that looked like for you? And how would you describe the culture that you've been able to build with your team? Gosh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly difficult to do to do this work, but I mean, I think the big the big um, pieces are finding the right people, you know, creating a process to do that without too much bias. Same biases apply in hiring that apply to making investment decisions, and so you know, putting process in place, having good interview panels, having tests and assessments where possible to help people get through the process on their merits and their performance over how well they interview. So putting those things in place, then building a great recruiting function to go out and source people and put them through the recruiting process. I mean, in 2021, we hired something like 60 people on a base of like, I think we were 15 or 20 before the pandemic. 
So we basically 4X or more the size of the company in 2021 by headcount. And that's very difficult to do, period. But putting systems of people in place to to make that run efficiently is um, a really important part of my job. And then as you build a fast-growing company, you know, you find the vast majority of people in your on your current team have been there for less than six months or less than 12 months. And so that's where culture becomes so important because the culture changes to the basically mean of the, the people on the team very rapidly. And so unless you have cultural pillars, let's say, that are both written down, inserted into a bunch of your meeting cadences and the way you operate, celebrated at team meetings, you know, calling people out and saying, oh my gosh, like for us, um, candor, basically candor over harmony was a very important cultural pillar from the early days until now. And when someone's willing to stand up at all hands and say something like, I think this decision was stupid and I want to understand why we made it, we celebrate that because it's all about making good decisions and the truth and sort of the best, the best decision wins. So it's just a lot of uh, being intentional about the people on the team, the values you want to amplify, choosing to celebrate those, and then just being patient and letting it all play out. That's awesome. I love the, the phrases that you use to describe how, how you guys work together. How, like, as you're, you're here in a, in a seat and you're building a platform that can change what access to finance and capital could look like. So what excites you when thinking about the landscape that you're working with and how the next three to five years would look like for that niche of fintech that that you're in? Well, I think that now that we're at this tipping point in the economy where three quarters of companies run on these SaaS native financial systems of record, there's just no reason why any company that's operating has to raise capital the old way. And what that really means, I mean, obviously there's a huge benefit to entrepreneurs to being able to click buttons and get efficient financing. Just like a traveler, you know, pre-kayak versus post-kayak, I love clicking buttons and having the most efficient, cheapest route from point A to point B every single time I, I travel versus the old way. But I think that what gets me most excited is just the impact that has on society. You know, in the, in the Industrial Revolution, like in the early 1800s, there was just this inflection point. If you look at GDP growth per capita from like the beginning of time, there was just an inflection point in a few years, whereas a society, we began becoming wealthier at a much more rapid pace than five or six years before that. And I think what we'll see with this SaaS adoption kind of revolution and putting data first in the financing process is a similar inflection point around how we allocate capital as a society being more efficient and accelerating the pace of human progress is something that gets me pretty excited. And I don't think we're 10 or 20 or 40 years away from that. I think this is like the next three to five years, we'll see this inflection point start to happen. And what current unmet needs do you see for your the entrepreneurs and the investors that you work with? And how do you see those changing in the short time frame that you're describing? So the biggest constraint actually now that we have the um the capital allocation problem, you know, well well in the scope of our efforts, gets down to coaching and, and fulfilling human potential. So, you know, it gets back to how I built my business. So if you're an entrepreneur and you've got efficient access to capital just sitting there then you're actually limited now by your ability to make good decisions, have the grit to operate, be able to hire a team and you know exercising the skills of the entrepreneur. And that is an equally massive problem. It's an education problem. It's a training problem. In fact, when I was a venture capitalist, I mean, that was the thing that stood out to me most. There are so many more great ideas with a little bit of traction than there are 
entrepreneurs who are capable of executing them all the way to the finish line. And so that's, that's a, you know, equally tremendous constraint in the system. So I think, you know, part of it is just like our society is more comfortable talking openly about coaching and failure and self-improvement than we ever have before. So leaning into that more on the back of efficient access to capital is a really big thing. But it's something I think a lot about too. I mean, like, what does the new version of McKinsey look like or Accenture that's bringing the strategy and execution expertise to businesses in a world where capital is more accessible, data is more transparent? I think there will be some business built there that is equally impactful to Hum's business. And it's going to be together that we, you know, we make the the human progress arc accelerate. That's awesome. It's really interesting that you bring that up because. Oftentimes, a lot of investors, they say the one thing that they're looking for in hearing a founder's story is, are there moments of resilience, right? Because this is a journey that is difficult. Sometimes it's an uphill battle, but it's kind of like looking for those qualities. And is that person able to take on failures and get back up really quickly? That's going to make a difference for the business. So we're running out of time. So again, loved hearing so much about Hum Capital, but we do typically end with a personality question. So sure. I know you live in, in Austin. I'm not too sure where, where you are right now, but huge controversial question. What is the best barbecue joint in Austin? The Salt Lick. And what's so special about it? So I, I've only been to Austin one time. I think I went to, it's Franklin's a place. Yeah. I might have gone. Yeah, Franklin's very popular, but the salt looks better. It's um, it's hard to talk about barbecue, but it's like there's like ginger in the barbecue sauce. It's like a fusion of like so a little bit of like Vietnamese influence because the founder was in the I think in the Vietnam War and married a Vietnamese lady, and they sort of like combine the both the best of their cuisines and the barbecue. And it's also just like a gigantic successful business. I mean, you go there and there's like thousands of people eating at the exact same time, but they have the best barbecue. Awesome. And what's your go-to order? <laughs> they have like a family, all you can eat, everything on one plate. That's my go-to order, which is, um, <laughs> as I've gotten older, it's more and more disgusting, but uh, it was awesome going there in high school. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show and I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write us a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. Here you'll access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, a very special thank you to our wonderful editor, Rafael Ostria. Until next time, your host, Gabby.